can be seated. <clears throat> Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tonight. I think other than John 3.16, maybe you could guess it, what the most well-known verse in the New Testament is. Apart from John 3.16, what the most well-known verse in the New Testament is. Now, I could be, uh, I could be wrong. Someone was about to guess. I'll tell you. I think... Maybe the most well-known verse in the New Testament, apart from John 3.16, is in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, thou shalt not judge. How many of you have ever had someone quote that verse to you? Thou shalt not judge. Well, I think tonight, and maybe this will sound strange to you, that the main idea of our passage tonight, if I could summarize it in three words, 1 Corinthians 6, this is the message. Thou shalt judge. Now that may seem strange to you. I don't think I'm contradicting Jesus. I'd, I'd like to think I'm not. But what Jesus is saying is in a different context. That's when someone says that verse to you, you can tell them that the Bible has many commands for us to judge. But Jesus is telling us not to judge in a particular way in Matthew 7. But as we'll read our text tonight, it's quite clear that God is trying to urge his church to exercise proper judgment. The church was not judging as they should. They needed to judge sin. Now generally, here's how we respond to offenses or to sin. I think in the middle is biblical judgment, but I think we tend to respond to offenses and sin in two other ways. We either respond by ignoring the sin, we ignore the sin of another person, or we outsource that judgment to someone else, okay? So rather than as Christians and as a church judging biblically, our two default responses in our flesh is to ignore sin or to outsource judgments. I think a good way for us to summarize chapter number five is Paul trying to articulate to this church that they should no longer ignore sin, right? It's kind of what chapter five starts off with. They're ignoring this, this grievous sin in their midst. And yet I think a good way to summarize the message of chapter number six is that rather than the church taking upon themselves to exercise judgment, they have now outsourced the judgments of sin um, in another situation that is a little bit different than the one we encountered in chapter number five. Now, I think our passage tonight has relevance to a lot of different things that could pop up. And I tried to brainstorm some situations in which you and I might be tempted to ignore sin or outsource judgment. So maybe uh, someone is taking advantage financially of another person in the church, but nobody is listening. 
They're not listening to you when you confront them about it. The person who's being taken advantage of is not listening to you when you talk to them about it. And we generally, I've seen this happen in church situations. We generally leave it at that and we say, that guy's shady and I think she's being taken advantage of or he's being taken advantage of by them and we just ignore it. We leave it at that. Maybe someone hurts you, wrongs you, and offends you repeatedly and sins against you with no apology and no recourse, even when you confront them about it. Sometimes we ignore it. I think often in the church world, we find a different church. Am I speaking truth or not? All right. Some of y'all act like that's never happened to you. I've seen it happen in my churches. Uh, Another one. Uh, a Christian spouse sins against you in a very serious way, maybe cheats on you, and you try to confront them about their sin, and they do not respond with repentance. Now, I'm not saying that this doesn't often end up in court rightly, but I, I think I've seen in our passages addressing that there's a step that is skipped when we go to, we confront them, They don't respond, and we go to divorce court, and we take care of it there. And again, I'm not saying that's wrong to divorce someone in that situation, but I would say that that is outsourcing judgment of a sinful conflict. Maybe another Christian or person wrongs you financially. Uh, Someone, you give them a loan, uh, and they borrow money from you in the church, and they won't pay you back and you've confronted them about it, and you've talked to them about it, when you receive a loan from somebody, and it's called a loan for a reason, and you don't pay them back, you know what we call that? We call that theft, right? So generally, here's what happens. We often will ignore it, say, you know, whatever. Um, you're an idiot, but I'm not, I'm not gonna chase you down. Or we, we take them in very serious situations. We might have a civil lawsuit against somebody like that. And so what I I think our passage tonight is trying to teach us is that biblical judgment lies somewhere in the middle of those two camps. And I think that this is an important passage for us to work through carefully because I think that the message of 1 Corinthians 6 has been oversimplified um, in in some of our minds when we think of the, the patent biblical advice, you shouldn't sue another Christian. It's oversimplifying what 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about And I think it it allows us to think that it's only relevant to very certain circumstances, when in reality, Paul is writing this and addressing things that are much more broad, okay? Now, let me explain to you a little bit of the background so that you understand this passage better. Because when we read the Bible, we have to always ask the question, what did it mean to its original readers? And then we apply it to us, okay? This is very important historical detail for you to understand. It's likely although you do have to read between the lines to piece this together, but it's quite likely that there are some sort of internal financial disputes going on between the rich and the poor in the church. Perhaps from a landlord and a a person he was renting to, maybe. And in the Greek court system, it seems like they were taking this to the Corinthian court system to resolve it. Now, you and I are quite blessed to have a court system that I would say gets things right pretty often. I mean, certainly uh, compared to ancient uh, court systems, it's quite an improvement on that. And 
Um, you know, there's huge crimes if you try to bribe a federal official and things like that. But in their day, that wasn't a thing. It was very well known in Corinthian society that you could pay off a judge. And so when you take someone to court, really what happens is the rich always win in Corinthian society. And so what was happening in the Corinthian context here is that the courts were being leveraged as a tool for what I would say is legal theft. They were taking advantage of the poor people in their congregation and taking them to court and buying off the judges. Now, here's how the passage tonight breaks down. It has a command from Paul not to outsource uh, disputes in the church to non-Christians to resolve them. And then what Paul is gonna do, this is how I think it's, it's helpful to break down this passage. He's going to take that command and he's going to root it in theology. And the way I'm gonna break down the passage tonight is that Paul's gonna command and then he's gonna take three different branches of theology to help us understand what is backing up this biblical command. And I think all of this will help all of us. So you may not tonight be worried about suing another Christian. I promise you, tonight's text can be helpful to you, okay? Um, and then I, I, I do, uh, I'll, I'll get to some of the disclaimers later um, about you know, the court system and that this doesn't mean that Christians should use the court system, okay? So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, verses one through 11. And then we'll dig into the passage tonight. <laughs> Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If ye then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set then to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goeth to law with brother and that before unbelievers." Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that's your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. So what does Paul say here? <clears throat> in verses one through five, we see the driving command of the passage that Paul is telling these church members that they should not resolve internal disputes 
by outsourcing them to non-Christians. So he's saying that there's these internal things going on in the church, and the church has done wrong by outsourcing the judgment of those internal conflicts to the court system. Now, um, Paul, I think you may have noticed, and I tried to read it in a way that reflected what Paul's tone was. Uh, did we sense that his language and his tone were strong? Perhaps the strongest in the whole letter. Now, you and I are like, why is he so worked up about this thing about not suing Christians? We'll get there in a minute. But this might be, in some ways, some of, other than maybe chapter 10, some of his strongest tone in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Verse number one literally reads like this. How dare you? How dare you? Verse number five says, I speak this to your shame. Listen to verse number six. Uh, and he says, this is why I'm ashamed of you, because brother goeth to law with brother. So he's saying two Christians are resolving a dispute with the help of a non-believer. Now, why is that such a problem? Because in the scenarios I mentioned in my introduction and in the scenario that was going on in Paul's day, financial disputes between church members in which it seemed like one party was taking advantage of another party, the church should have stepped in. Now, pause. In our American mindset, you just felt internally, that sounds weird. Because in America, when we have issues that fall into the realm of crime, we jump right to the American court system. And again, I'll give you my disclaimers later, I don't necessarily believe that that means that's not necessary, okay? But recognize that we just came out of a passage in chapter number five that makes it very clear that Christians are not supposed to just be bothered by sin. They're supposed to step in and intervene when something is seriously off, right? We all on the same page about that, okay? And so here is this sin going on in the church. Can I frame it that way? Sin is going on. Brothers are stealing from other brothers, leveraging the court system. Big deal. Big red flag. And these are people who say, I'm a member of First Baptist Church of Corinth. Not cool, right? And instead of, of them trying to resolve it at the church, it's being resolved in the court system, right? Verse number one says that they should have taken these disputes before the saints, right? That's what Paul says you should have done instead. Verse number four um, he kind of reiterates this. In verse number four, um, the, the original language could be interpreted two different ways, right? It could be that Paul is commanding them to set um, as a, um, a mediator somebody who intentionally does not represent the upper class, right? Verse number four, set them to judge um, who are least esteemed in the church. The, another way to read this, because the original Greek language doesn't have question marks or anything, is that Paul is actually saying, you are setting people to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Talking about unbelievers. But nonetheless, the same idea is present in both possible readings of this, that either way, Paul is emphasizing the need for judgment by Christians in the church of sin that is going on between Christians. When they can't work it out between themselves, the church then is supposed to step in. Okay, and then Paul says in a pretty strong language in verse number five, he says, is nobody wise enough to figure this out? 
Now, if you've been with us in the series, which all of you have, you know that this wisdom thing's kind of a big deal to Corinthians, right? They were really proud of themselves about the wisdom of this world. And so Paul's kind of turning the tables on them and saying, oh, you're so wise, but you can't figure out how to resolve internal disputes in your church. Wow, can't believe there's no one smart enough, no one wise enough in this church to figure out how to resolve this issue between brother A and brother B, and brother A is taking brother B to court to extract more money from him. Okay, do you see the sense here? And so Paul is saying, rather than them sending it to the court system of their day, which essentially wasn't a just court system, and it was just a tool for the rich to get richer, he says that this should be um, uh, resolved within the church, okay? So here's what this passage is teaching us, and then I'm gonna root it in the background and the principles that Paul's gonna give us. What this passage is telling us is that in matters of sinful disputes, God is telling us that these sinful disputes should be resolved in the church and by the church, if at all possible, okay? So I gave you those scenarios in the introduction. Let me explain to you how the church maybe should step in in those scenarios. And there's always exceptions, okay? So we understand that Paul's giving us a framework Sometimes we have to use wisdom and judgment in the gray areas, okay? But let me just give you in in my perfect made-up world how these things would be coming before the church rather than the way that they were handled when I talked about them earlier. So let's say someone hurts you and wrongs you. They're sinfully treating you in a way that's serious, right? Um, They're gossiping and slandering about you, right? Another brother Christian, a brother or sister in this church is slandering you publicly time and time and time again right? And, and, and you approach them and they either don't apologize or don't uh, fix that or they apologize and then they go out and do the same thing, which is no apology or repentance at all, right? Repentance means change. So how does the church get involved? Well, instead of us ignoring it or leaving the church, how should the church step in? Well, instead, if something like that is happening, listen so closely because I, I think this is foreign to many people. We, we might need this passage more than we think. Instead, that issue should be brought to another brother or sister who can help mediate and confront the wrongdoer. Because there's power in not just you confronting someone for their slander or their gossip, but in two brothers or sisters saying, this is wrong, this is not right, right? And if it's not resolved, this public sin, whatever it may be, I'm just listing an example or two, then it should be brought before the church because even James uses some pretty serious language in James chapter three about the tongue and can a tongue bless people and curse people at the same time? Can a a fountain bring forth bitter water and sweet water at the same time? This is serious sin, right? And so the church steps in, and if that person does not repent and they continue to be divisive and slanderous, they are excommunicated from the church, right? The church is resolving it. Second example, a Christian spouse, let's say, is continually committing affairs in their marriage, and a brokenhearted wife or husband confronts them about it only to find out they're unwilling to change. Now, this is a situation, and I want to speak sensitively, because I know some of you have life experience with things like this. I don't. But this is a situation that generally we might skip a step 
that could save a person's soul or their marriage, okay? Because sometimes, unfortunately, people don't listen to their spouse's brokenhearted confrontation. But we know what the Bible teaches. When a brother offends you and you confront them individually, Jesus is clear in Matthew 18 that what do we do next? Class, we bring someone else, right? And then if they don't respond to that, we bring it before the church. Well, why is that there? Is it so we can embarrass people in their marriages? No, it's because Jesus, I think, knew what he was doing. And he recognized that some people, they're so steeped in the self-deception of sin that they need an entire church of people speaking truth into their life and confronting them about their wrongdoing to hopefully, if the spirit of God dwells in them, to break them down and produce repentance. Now, sometimes that may not work. And divorce, Jesus seems to allow for that in those scenarios in his other teachings. But I'm not saying that every Christian, you know, people in these situations want to get divorced. No one wants to get divorced. But I'm saying that the church ought to be involved when a brother or sister are sinning, is sinning against the other in a serious way and they won't respond. We bring, we bring one person or two people and then we bring it to the church. Another person uh, takes a loan from you, right, and doesn't pay it back, and you kindly confront them, hey, you promised you would pay me back at such and such date, but you haven't. Well, it's real easy for a shyster like that to just say, eh, ha ha, I'll pay you back sometime. But then you bring a brother or sister around and say, hey, dude, you're stealing. This is a sin. This is not okay. And, and you confront it. And then maybe the church has to get involved because, I mean, a brother or sister who's totally okay with stealing from another brother or sister may not be a brother or sister. Okay, we'll get there in a minute. But someone who could just sleep at night having stolen a couple hundred bucks from his brother in Christ may not have the Holy Spirit in them. That's possible, right? They may not be a brother. And so here's what Paul's telling us is that we need to, as, as people, think with the framework that if this is inside the church and this is a brother or sister sinning against one another in an outward, in a serious, in an unrepentant way, the church needs to get involved for the sake of their soul and the sake of restoration, okay? Now, let me give you my caveats, okay? I don't think Paul, in this passage, is saying the government is no longer necessary, and so now it's the church's job to judge and punish evildoers, right? That goes all the way back to Genesis 9, where God establishes human government to deal with sins like violence and others that we cannot resolve in our own human power, okay? So God is not saying he's not anti-court system, okay? I think God, in some ways, is the architect of that. In fact, he calls himself a judge, okay? So I think God is not saying that those things are wrong. I think that, that what Paul is dealing with here is that we're skipping a step sometimes um, or we're ignoring sin and not involving uh, other brothers and sisters in Christ where it could maybe produce repentance, okay? So this passage, I think we need to be careful to recognize that this doesn't mean, well, if this person wears the label Christian or puts it in their Facebook bio, then I can't take them to court because God says I can't. No, what it's saying is that we should follow the steps Jesus gave us 
And Jesus has given us a government, a governmental structure that allows us to have evildoers punished, okay? Um, And so God invests the government with authority and power to mediate disputes, right? So if someone robs you, it's okay uh, if they're another Christian to eventually involve the police, okay? Are we on the same page here? But what I'm saying is if a brother or sister robs you, you should confront them and the church or other Christians should confront them first. And then we involve the police. Now, again, there are caveats and there are exceptions to this, okay? It's not the church's responsibility to deal with, let's say, like criminal offenses, like, I don't know, um, sexual abuse or things like that. That's where you get real messed up where church is like, no, we're gonna handle all this in-house and we're not gonna report it to the police. Eh, try again, okay? It's not our job to investigate murders or things like that. We, we call in people to deal with this and our church does deal with it. Let's say someone were to commit that sort of a sin, our church would discipline them and, and excommunicate them and allow them to produce the fruits of repentance over time as they allow themselves to be subjected to um, an investigation and things like that, okay? So this is not a blanket command against lawsuits if someone wears the label Christian. Are we, on, are we, we seeing that? Yeah, nay, okay. Do we need a church vote? Okay, I'm just kidding. So what Paul does then, and this is where it may be more broadly helpful to most of you, is that Paul is going to use theology to back up this command, okay? And sometimes we think and we separate theology and the practical, and we shouldn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. Every command in scripture really ultimately is rooted in some sort of theology. And so here's what I think Paul does is that he's going to use eschatology, the study of end time, the, the, the doctrine of last things. He's going to use Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And he's going to use soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, to reinforce this issue going on in the church of brothers and sisters sinning against one another and it not being dealt with properly. Okay? I want you to see in verses two through three how Paul roots this idea in eschatology. Okay? The reason we have eschatology in the study of last things is not so we can all be like, I have the right chart on how Jesus is going to end all this stuff. That's not the primary purpose of eschatology. Okay? What Paul's going to say is that what we know about the end should govern how we live here now. Okay, so in verses two through three, Paul teaches us that Christians should judge internal disputes because they will judge the world in the end times. Look at chapter six, verse number two. Okay, he backs up his statement about not taking people to court before the unjust by saying this, do you not know that the saints shall, here's a promise, judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Now that's interesting. How much more things that pertain to this life? Okay, so here's what Paul's saying. He's using a greater to lesser argument. He's saying, in the end times, as a Christian, you will rule and reign with Christ. Do we believe that tonight? We will rule and reign with Jesus. Okay, we will shout that from the rooftops, but we'll forget that that might actually apply to something right now. And Paul's saying, you're gonna rule and reign with Jesus, but you can't figure out how to deal with sin in the church? Come on, y'all. You're gonna judge angels. 
And you can't judge matters of sin in the church? That's what he's saying. And he's rooting this in the Old Testament. Like, listen to uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. I think it's on the screen. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to who? To the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So what, what Daniel 7 is saying is that when the ancient of days comes, we know that to be Jesus, in, in his premillennial return, most likely is at least how I think is the most plausible reading of in the end times, is that when Jesus comes, he will set up a kingdom on this earth and we will rule and reign with him, okay? Hebrews also points this out. What's this whole idea about judging angels? What's up with that, right? Well, in Hebrews chapter number two, it makes the point that if Christ is not below the angels and we are joint heirs with Christ, then we too will govern and judge the angels, right? That Paul, so Paul's kind of extracting from that. Look at Hebrews 2, 5. For under the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, wherever we speak. So he's saying the world to come, usuns, usuns reigning with Jesus, okay? When we reign with Jesus, the angels will not be, uh, we will not be subject to them. They will be subject to us, okay? So here's what Paul's saying. If you are going to rule and reign with Christ and judge the world and judge angels, I don't think this judgment's above your pay grade. I don't think dealing with sin and the, and the sensitivity that a lot of the situations I talked about lends itself to, it's not above our pay grade. I mean, if we believe what the Bible says about the end times, it's not, right? We even talked about that this morning, right? That Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom. That is authority, right? He's endowing us not just with future authority or future wisdom, right? Paul points out in um, verse number five that we have wisdom, right? He said in chapter number two, you have the mind of Christ. So we need to recognize that those things, they may be future realities, but they speak to our present authority as a church, our present ability to deal with these sensitive situations, okay? So secondly, Paul's gonna root this idea in Christology, okay? So eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Now I want you to see in verses seven through eight that he roots it in Christology. He teaches us in verses seven through eight that as followers of Christ, we should be willing to suffer wrongdoing rather than always seeking vengeance on wrongdoing, okay? I think these principles balance themselves out, okay? I don't think they have to be pitted against each other. We use discernment in the Holy Spirit to know, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. But I think what Paul's doing in verses seven through eight, he's, he's I think, alluding to Jesus's teaching about, like the Roman soldier, if he asks you to go one mile, go two. If a man hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. I think he's alluding to Jesus' teaching, which, of course, Jesus, of, of all people, exemplified turning the other cheek, right? When he was silent as a lamb going to the cross, right? And so here's what Paul says in verses 7 through 8. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law with one another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He said, listen, you guys are going to court to right these wrongs against you. Why don't you just 
turn the other cheek. And in fact, he says, actually, in their scenario, verse number eight, no, actually, you're not just suffering. You are wrongdoers. You are, you are trying to exact vengeance on people when really as a Christian, there is a threshold of forbearance and suffering we should be willing to endure, okay? So um, what, what verse eight gives us the idea of is that they weren't just getting back maybe what they were owed financially from those who were their debtors. They were defrauding other Christians in the congregation. Paul was telling them they were stealing. They were thieves, right? So Paul says, let's go back to Christianity 101. Jesus suffered, and you should be willing to suffer too. You are called to suffer. You are called to turn the other cheek. You are called not just to give up your cloak or your coat, but to then give them the other layer of warm clothing. So when it comes to disputes with brothers and sisters in Christ, when it comes to offense, what Paul is introducing here is that there is a place for us to ask the question, do I really need to get back at them for that? Or can I suffer entrusting the situation to Jesus? Okay? Now again, there are times in which you are not called to just grin and bear it, right? We talked about that this morning. There are times in which it is the best thing for your brother and sister to confront their sin. But as Christians, it starts, ground zero for this type of stuff is it starts with us imputing this to the blood of Jesus, trusting that he is the great judge and saying, you know what? I'm gonna turn the other cheek. Now, if it becomes a habit, out of love for your brother or sister, we bring it before another Christian or the church. But we have to ask ourselves, is it really the Christian thing to do for us to say, let me get back at someone for every time they wrong me. Is that really the Christian thing to do? Right? And as Christians, here's what I think Paul is pushing us to do, is that we should be the, the least willing to go to that last extreme step to deal with offenses. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, okay? I've, I've openly asked you to pray for me because I'm involved right now in a legal dispute um, with, with some extended family. It's really heart-wrenching. I could tell you more about it if you want. Um, it's really hard. So I'm not saying that we don't go there at some points, but I am saying that, that as Christians, uh, and I've even seen this in my own situation, I've had family who are like, Mike, stop trying to be a good Christian. <laughs> I've literally had people tell me that, right? I think there's a space in which we, as followers of Jesus, we, we say, you know what, I'm going to turn the other cheek, and I'm going to try and work with this person. And I, you know what, they're, they're taking advantage of me, fine, I'll just give them my stinking coat, you know? Okay, I'll give them my cloak too. But then there is a time to get involved, and sometimes there is a time for the church to get involved as well, okay? And that's where the last piece comes in. Paul roots his command here in soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And here's what he says in verses 9 through 11. Because we often treat verses 9 through 11 as like a separate thing. But it's very connected to this passage. And it's also connected to chapter 5. What he's saying is that in verses 9 through 11, that there is no place 
for habitual and serious sin from those who are Christians, okay? Paul is reminding us the same way he did at the end of chapter number five, right? I mean, look back at chapter number five. It's almost the exact same, although Paul adds some things, right? Look at verse number 11. I've written unto you not to keep company, chapter five, verse 11. If a man is called a fornicator, a covetous, or an idolater, a railer, or a drunkard, or extortioner, don't eat with them, right? And then now he says in chapter six, verse number nine, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice the next words. What does he say? Be not deceived. Pause. You know what that means? That as Christians, we might be tempted to forget that habitual and serious and unrepentant sin is not a mark of a Christian. He says, don't, don't be fooled. If this is, and, and again, like I'll point out last week, if these are nouns, if this is that person's character, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives us a whole list, right, uh, of these serious sins that point out somebody who is not a Christian, right? Look, look at verse number uh, Nine, fornicators. That sounds like chapter five. Idolaters, chapter number five. Adulterers, now he's getting more specific. Um, because in, actually in the end of chapter number six, he's gonna start talking about um, this cultural acceptable thing that was going on in the Corinthian day of prostitution with the temple priestesses and the pagan gods. And then he brings out two other words, nor effeminate, nor effeminate or abusers of themselves with mankind. Now, those are interesting terms. I don't know about you. When I hear the term abusers of themselves with mankind, I'm thinking self-harm, uh, abuse, you know, physical violence. That's not what this is, right? So it helps us to think, like, in the 1600s, utterly clear what this term meant. In our day, uh, what Paul's doing, if we just go back, he's using a, uh, two terms, that we could maybe put together and say that here's what he's talking about when he says effeminate and abuses themselves with mankind. Um, I think the way we would say this in our day is men who practice homosexuality. And not to get graphic, but he's talking about the receiver and the giver in such an act, okay? That's why it's translated effeminate. I, mean, I do think this speaks to transgenderism and things like that in our day. I think that that is a serious thing. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week in our study on the theology of the body. But Paul is using words in his culture that describe people who are practicing homosexuality, right? And then to continue on, he talks about thieves. This is, he's adding to this list, and I think this is because of the context in which it's happening. Thieves, covetousness, right? Extortioners. I think this goes in line with what was going on in the historical situation like I talked to you about. And so here's what Paul is doing. He's reminding you and me of the doctrine of salvation. He's saying this, and pay attention really clearly. He's saying God's grace is so strong that as a Christian, we should expect that when God's grace comes into someone's life, it makes a difference. I'm gonna say that again. God's grace is so strong that we should expect that when God's grace is present in someone's life, it will make a difference. Now, I'm not saying that, that sin or uh, saved people will never sin 
or will never commit some of these sins, okay? Notice that Paul says, and such were some of you, in verse number 11. But what, again, he's using nouns, he's saying these are characteristic sins of people. He, he's saying that we, God's grace is so strong, we should expect that someone who has received God's grace is not going to be a serial extortioner. That someone who has received God's grace is not going to live a lifestyle of unrepentant homosexuality, adultery, thievery, drunkenness, and such like. Again, I know Christians who battle these desires. I personally know Christians who deal with homosexual desires and urges, but they're trying to fight against it. Hey, praise God for that, all right? I don't know what it's like to deal with that, but I do know that that is a sin that people deal with, the same that you might deal with your pet sin. But here's what Paul is saying, and I think he's saying this in a very serious way to the church. I know verse 11 is always quoted in a really positive context, like, praise God, you know, you know homosexuals and, and thieves and idolaters are getting saved. That's not what Paul's saying, exactly. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this. <clears throat> he's saying the sins that some of you are exhibiting, they are not who you are in Christ. He's saying to those people in the church who are taking advantage of maybe extortion being their sin, he's saying this is not who you are in Christ. That's who you were. Stop it. You are not a serial addict to pornography. You are not an uncontrolled, angry person. You are not someone who is so governed by the things of this world that you live and you boil in covetousness. That's not who you are. Christ saved you from that. And I think he's saying this. If that's who you are, you are not one of Christ's. But if you are one of Christ's, that is not who you are. Get away from that stuff, because that's not who you are. You are washed. You were washed. Man, what a blessing that is. Think of all my sins. Christ washed them away. We have been justified. We have been sanctified. We've been set apart, right? We were um, justified and we are empowered now to live a new life. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying to the church at large, if you're dealing with situations in which someone, their character is exhibiting that they are a fornicator, unrepentant, won't change, they are not one of Christ's. They're not one of Christ's. Don't be deceived. That to me, that, that means that someone's doing some deceiving. No, 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 I prayed this prayer. Well, hold on. I'm not doubting that you prayed a prayer, but if the grace of Jesus is in your heart, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. And our church will come alongside of you to help you, but this is not who you are, right? See, what Paul is saying is that when dealing with serious disputes in the church, habitual and serious sin is not okay, and it is not the mark of a Christian. If someone is confronted about their sin multiple times and they will not deal with it, 
or they give some sort of false worldly repentance like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, then the church must make a decision. And I think Paul's saying in verses nine through 11, let me give you a rubric so that you can exercise the keys of the kingdom and make a decision. If that woman's husband is continually cheating on her, then you must discipline that man for membership and and yes, they may have to go to divorce court and sort all that out and the assets and all that legally, but you as a church need to exercise judgment because an adulterer is not part of the kingdom. And you're mixing your messaging up if you retain this person as a member of your church who has committed adultery and won't change, won't repent. If that man is taking advantage of someone or stealing money or, you know, taking all these loans and not paying them back and has no intention to do so, that person is a thief. They're not a Christian. They're a thief. And so you need to exercise the keys of the kingdom. This person is not, um, they will not inherit the kingdom, verse number nine, right? And again, this is how we deal, this, this is something we need to keep in mind when dealing with addictions, now, again, I think the church should work with somebody. That's part of repentance. Like, if someone wants to be worked with and helped, by all means, that person might be a Christian, okay? It's the Spirit of God that says, hey, I need help with my addiction. It's the Spirit of God that says, yes, I, I, I struggle with lust, or I struggle with this sin, and I want help. So that's not what this passage is condemning, okay? It's talking about people who don't want help, who don't want help. But if they want help, man, Praise God for verse 11. Because we believe that the grace of Christ changes people. Such were some of you. This humbles us too, doesn't it? Because while the church may have to come together and say, this is not okay, this is wrong, we, don't, we cannot affirm this person's profession of faith. I think verse 11 also says this, don't you forget that's who you were before Christ. That's who you were. And the only reason you're not that is because Jesus in his grace and his spirit stepped into your life. There are times when God calls Christians to judge. We must not ignore sin. And though this may not always be something we think about or wrestle with, we must not outsource judgment of sin either. There are times where it's in our lane as Christians to come alongside of a believer and confront them about their sin and help them be restored so they may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, as Paul says in chapter five. These things are not easy. They are not fun. And I'll tell you right now, it's my least favorite part of my job. The few times I've had to do this. But they're necessary. But this passage tells us we have the assurance that if Christ will equip you and I to reign over the whole world, think about that. I wasn't the kid in school who's like, let me be president someday. No way, I don't want that job. Reigning over the whole world, holy cow, that's a lot of responsibility. Well, here's what Paul's saying. Christ will equip you to have that type of responsibility He can equip us to handle these things internally that need to be handled internally. He assures us that if we believe the gospel is powerful, 
it will be easy to spot when the gospel is missing from someone's life. It'll be easy to see. Because there is a difference that the grace of God makes in our lives. Let's spend a moment praying and asking God to help us respond rightly to this passage. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, I'll admit, I don't always know how this would apply to every person in here, but we're here in 1 Corinthians 6 for a reason. Lord, maybe there's someone here who's been hurt, uh, 